everybody, this is Mike Van Meter, and welcome to the Mike Van Meter Show. And this is your one-stop shop for everything having to do with the Constitution, freedom, liberty, and quite frankly, I think just the best way to live your life. And we are here today with Grace Morrison, who is running for the House of Delegates here in Virginia in the 31st District. And Grace is an independent. We're going to talk to her about that and why she chose to run as an independent. And uh, this is her first time in politics, just like me. And I found all of this to be very interesting because, you know, I, I love to talk to the other candidates that are running alongside me and find out what their motivations are, why they decided to run, why they chose the path that they chose and and how they are approaching things. Because uh, I think like Grace, I'm not naive to politics. I've like all of us have been around it for quite some time. You know, I have a political science degree and have worked in government for a long time. But let me tell you something. Politics, you think you understand it, but when you actually get involved in it and you run for an office yourself, it is a completely, completely different perspective. And I know that Grace feels that same way. But we're going to get, you know, you hear on this podcast my point of view on that quite a bit. But I'm interested in hearing what Grace has to say, and I'm just very honored to have her on the show. And with that, Grace, welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Mike. And thank you so much for having me. What an honor. I really appreciate it. Oh, no, the honor's mine. And I, you know, you and I were talking before we came on the uh, broadcast here, and you were really talking about some things I found interesting, and I know the listeners will find interesting as well. And that is, hey, listen, we are in, in a real spot right now in our history to be honest with you because as as, today's august 3rd as you know grace and Uh i have not heard the latest um but i will tell you that as we speak the former president of the united states is downtown in washington dc which is right down the street from where you and i are now uh being indicted for a guy even know how many times it is now and it's just amazing and uh and i'm not going to get into that that's a whole bucket of worms right there (laughs) in of itself but what it's showing i tell you what this has been doing and and again i'm not i'm not taking any positions on this okay that's another Uh discussion for another time but what it shows us is uh or what it is doing is getting more and more people that typically are not interested in politics and what's going on in, in government yes. is getting them involved in it and interested, it, it, at least the, in, in my circles. There are people that I work with that hit, are typically apathetic that are now uh-huh. like, like, what the heck is going on? And they're showing an interest. Now, you and I uh, have felt that way for a while. You know, we, yeah. we said, okay, uh, uh, I'm going to answer the call. It's time for me to serve my, my in our case, the Commonwealth of Virginia, because we're both running for uh, state seats. And uh, the listeners have heard quite a bit about what my motivations for that were. But what are yours? Tell us a bit about, like, how did you go from not being involved in politics to you're now running for the House of Delegates? <laughs> That's a great question. So uh, my family and I, we love to uh, have lots and lots of discourse on things that are current event, political, etc. Um, my husband spent a short stint in local politics um, in a, a nonpartisan role uh, on town council. And, um, <clears throat> and so 
he only went into that in order to make a difference in our community because we had some properties in our neighborhood that were not being upheld. People were in danger. Children were in danger. Um, and so after, I don't know, dozens literally of phone calls, how do we, how, who do we call? Who's going to help? How do we, where are the um, regulations? What's being enforced? How do we make a difference here? And finally, somebody said, you're not really going to do much unless you can actually get on the uh, zoning committee or on. Uh, so he did. And um, and his very last vote as a council member um, was actually to pass the bill that he worked on for five years just to get our community to implement uh, the state standards for uh, house maintenance, property maintenance. So. I mean, that was bananas. Um, and so in talking about this delegate race, our whole area was redistricted. And um, so we went from three delegates to one. Um, and so by three delegates, I mean our community was was broken up into multiple different um, orientations. And so Anyhow, it was kind of a big deal because now this seat covers pretty much our whole area. So it feels more localized and the representation feels more central to who we are. And uh, so in that respect, it's good. However, here's the, here's the, the, the blessing and the curse. The blessing is, uh, by and large, we live in a very conservative part of Virginia, and um, which is a massive blessing for the individual liberties of the people that live here. However, um, the, the governing bodies are controlled by a smaller group by and large of, of you know, there's like 50 people <laughs> on a committee and, um, and now others could get involved. You know, you can go pay your dues and, and get involved in the committee, but it's a small network of people and um and so like you uh somebody gets chosen and um and then everybody goes to work to make sure that person is going in and and so in our community uh we had a person running for the republican seat and um and there was a small firehouse primary and there was a four-hour window for 75,000 people to vote in this primary. Now those are Oh my goodness. Oh, those are not in and of itself. Uh, right. So and and that's not that all of those 75,000 people roughly or more are Republicans and should vote in a Republican primary. However, it's a really large portion of it because we are primarily a conservative area. And you've got a 30-minute drive or more from any end of this district to get to the the one place that there were um that it was possible to vote so instead of having a large window of opportunity for everyone to participate have precincts in each of the three counties represented um everything was localized into one county with a very narrow window People were offered ice cream to come vote. I mean, there's just lots of levels of things that were really riding a razor's edge of impropriety. And um, so 
anyhow, even the person, the other person, which I did speak to, and it's probably a really good thing they didn't get the nomination because they expressed a great deal of disdain for the people of our community, which I don't think you can effectively represent people you don't actually like. Um, so that is a problem. However, the means by which we got to the result uh, were... Mm, I'm not sure the nicest way to phrase it. It, it. it wasn't totally above board. I'll say that. And so in that respect, we had one person running. The Democrats were not going to run anyone. Uh, and that was based on one of the people on my team had called them. They said, no, nope, we're not going to run anything because we're going to lose by at least 40 points. So it's pointless, which puts me in a fabulously terrible position as a conservative who wants conservative values represented at the state house when they caught wind an independent was running now we have a democrat running as well so i feel a little uncomfortable in that respect however um i stand on my principles i'm gonna finish the race and and i believe that choices uh only strengthen our democracy. And so here I am. Now, so just to be clear on this, in this race, you're running as an independent. And, and yes. who else do we have running in this, this district? So we have Dolores Oates running as the Republican nominee and Stephen Foreman as the Democrat nominee. And let me just back up and more correctly answer. I got on a tangent there. I want to I really hone in on on why I chose to run. The, the reason I went into all that is because there was going to be one option that was really narrowly decided and um and i spoke to somebody in the elections arena um and she has been doing election stuff since before i was born and i'm 46 and she looked at me and said grace people need choices and so i couldn't go for the republican nominee because it nomination because if i did there would still only be just me and that's not a, that's not a, you know, people don't get to say, hey, I want to hear a couple points of view. I want to see who's going to represent me the best. So in order for people to have choices, I had to take it all the way to November. <laughs> and the only way to do that was uh, to bypass the primary and run as an independent. Yeah, and that that's that's interesting. And by the way, and I appreciate you doing that, and I appreciate you pro providing the choices to people because I don't disagree with that. And you know, oftentimes these, and I find these firehouse primaries interesting. I really do. Um, very, mm -hmm. very controversial. And for those that are listening, um, and I think it's going to be a lot of people that don't understand what those are. Can, it, it, like, can you give us the cliff note version of what a firehouse primary is? So the committee, as far as I understand, can choose whether to use the state primary window or to um, basically sponsor their own primary, usually a month or so before the, the statewide primary. And this allows more control of the committee over the primary, to my understanding. That's my loose interpretation of uh, why people employ firehouse primaries. To me, it seems like a really good way to steer a vote or um, kind of weed out possibly um, people from other parties voting in your primaries, that kind of thing. Yeah, and I and I will tell you that I, I have opinions of that my, myself. And, and again, 
these are, and, and please don't anybody take this as me being disparaging against anyone that has won those primaries and because they're, they're done. It's not unique to, to your district. These are done all no. over the place. Uh, of course. I, I personally, see, I'm like you. I think that the voters need more of a choice. I think that uh, we need to make the uh, ballot box accessible to as many people as we can and a firehouse mm-hmm. primary seems very restrictive particularly with the they will they will also limit like the number of places that you can vote and then restrict yes. the time frame and i'm That's not a right. big fan of that i'm not no. i'm not a big fan of that uh now some might say because you've heard me say if you listen to this podcast, I I talk all the time about how we need to get away with uh, or get do away with this election season that we have. Like, for example, in my case, uh, well, your case as well, um, the early voting starts in September 22nd and it goes through November 7th. That's ridiculous. Yes. That is absolutely yeah. ridiculous. We need to get back to a very reasonable time frame for voting. It needs to be a, a, a it needs to be a small window. But they've taken sure. it too far with firehouse primaries and made it like oh, yeah. exceptionally small. They've gone oh, yeah. in the other direction. I mean, that's a, that's yeah. just my opinion. Yeah, yeah. And I, to my knowledge, um, in Suffolk County, I believe that's where it is. Please research that for for sure, for sure. But um, they they had a firehouse primary. I think there were only two this year in the state, and uh, they ended up suing. Uh, because they didn't want to do it and the people sued and won in court and uh and their their uh financial reserve was revoked um for the the gop there the local committee and so it was a wild mess (laughs) so I, i don't even know what to say about that I, I'm not not a big fan, but so I can understand why you're you're doing what you're doing, and and again, you're you're not alone. I mean, there are we we've uh, <laughs> you know we we think that the primaries are over with, and there's some other districts here across the Commonwealth where uh, the candidate that lost the Republican primary then went and uh, you know they're doing sign-ins or they're running as independents, and it, it happens, it happens. But yeah. I think that yeah. I, I think that. This creates more harm than than good, and you know what what happens is, and a lot of there's a valid argument to say that the people that benefit from this are the Democrats when we do that, because then we start splitting our votes. Sure, um, you know what sure. I mean. But yeah, uh, I, I've I said it at the beginning of the podcast that getting into the when you get into the the nuts and bolts of of politics and you throw yourself into it, it really opens your eyes to what goes on behind the scenes and and you're front and center to that but now but on to your race so give us some of the big okay what are the big issues to you what are as you look across the commonwealth uh, not just in your district but you know because you'll be in the house of delegates and and you know you're going to be representing your district certainly but we're looking at the the larger commonwealth which includes the rural areas but also northern virginia where i live which is more like washington dc than it is virginia mm-hmm. um, right right tell us okay what what are you looking at what do you want to do in the house of delegates well, um, I'm looking at education. I think education is front and center of everything that we're doing right now. Um, I think that um, we need reform on so many levels, and I'm very pro-parent choice, and that gets me in trouble with people on both sides of the aisle. Uh, I spoke to a mom two days ago who said, I, 
I can get on board with some of your platform on pro parent choice. However, what do you do about parents who are irresponsible and detrimental to their children's future? And, uh, and I know I have witnessed that firsthand as well. Um, so it, it's a precarious situation, but at the end of the day, the moms and dads need the first choice unless they have been uh, credibly um, evaluated as harmful. In other words, there's been uh, abuse and evidence and prosecution, etc. cetera, um, in which case, you know, we're hoping that there are other family members that are capable, willing, and loving to take care of those children. But that's not the majority of families. The majority of families have kids because they love them and they want to uh, establish a legacy. And we need to make sure that we're not infringing upon that in uh, how we steward uh, our families. And so that's a big issue for me. Additionally, parents need to have more flexibility in where they are able to send their children to school. Um, In a rural area like mine, uh, we're sort of, you know, we, we've got the influx of the D.C. and all that. We have a lot of people here that commute. However, by and large, we are a rural farming community and uh, mountain town. And so we don't have plenteous options for private schools. And um, so that means we need to have public schools that serve our families well. And oftentimes those public schools get forgotten in the flock and are not funded well. And we get amazing teachers for a couple of years and then they need more money. So uh, there's a lot of things that we can do to retain good educators and not all of them include money. Um, In fact, I'd rather work somewhere where I was protected and valued and where I was allowed to do um, what I needed to do to empower my students, then be in a big city where I was marginalized or overly regulated and made the money, but the work-life uh, balance was terrible. You know what I mean? There's a lot of trade-offs. So one of the things we can do in our community is respect our teachers, respect our staff, and and use the resources that we have in the best way possible to make sure our students have the best possible chance at getting a quality education. Um, So there's a real fine balance of how to make all that work. But I I think parents need to have choices in where they send their kids. I think that um, the model in Arizona is really appealing to me where um, tax dollars that would go into the educational system are then put into uh, an allocated, I'm not sure exactly how deep it works. That part, don't, don't quote me on that part. That's not my lane. But having that available on an accountable level to distribute in a way that suits your family, I think is a really valuable thing that we can offer our people. And I don't, I think if it's working other places, we need to look at how it might work here. Okay. And then um, what are the, okay. So education, a parent's choice, what else? Yeah. What are you looking at? Okay. Well, I am, I'm a pro-life candidate uh, all the way. And, um, and so 
my challenge will be finding that place of reasonable compromise in order to move that um, line, the finish line, right? Because the finish line is we want we want children safe. So how do we do that? Well, if I go in and I say, well, I want all abortion ended, all, period, end of story, and I can't get anything through, then I risk putting things, putting babies at risk, putting children, family, women at risk um, by not having a plan outside of that because then they're going to go to the other extreme. So what kinds of things can we do to assist families and reduce abortions? Well, we can make adoption less difficult. And I think that it should be far easier to garner support and be able to put your child up for adoption in a safe way and a way that is not overly regulated and um, fiscally impossible for families to adopt. And that's kind of a big issue in Virginia. And um, so that's that's a big deal for me. Also, being able to support um, pregnancy centers that are caring for women who are in need. Uh, those are big, big issues for me. So I'm a solution-focused person. I don't want to just say this is what I'm against. I really want to work on how can we make things work that would diminish the thing that we're against. So that's big on my list. Um, additionally, I think that we need to look at our social services programs. And I think that we need to make sure that we have hedged our borders in well. And um, well, we don't have any foreign borders, Grace. What do you mean by that? Except that uh, we do have borders. We have we have state borders. We have financial borders. And when we have an influx of people who are not legalized citizens um, taking resources from those that are, uh, we have a border problem. And in, included in that comes an array of issues, uh, not the least of which is we have a severe drug problem. And, uh, and then we have um, trafficking of all kinds to include uh, human trafficking in our state. So those are really important things that we need to look at and make sure that we don't have, um, let's see, loose, loose uh, links, you know what I mean? So we need to make sure that that we're being responsible with the resources that we have, that we're not just, we don't have gaps in the uh, in the wall, so to speak. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up the social services because I have I've done podcasts in the past where I've talked about the border and I've gotten people respond saying, "Hey, Mike, um, listen, you're in Virginia. You're not a border state. You know why are you talking about that?" Sure. Well, sure. I think people forget where I work. You know, I work in the hospital, and I, I want to be very very clear about this. We at, we at the hospital, we are there to serve anyone. You walk in our doors and you need care, you're going to get that. I don't care what sure. the left tells you. Um, we we nobody's denied healthcare. Okay, nobody. Okay. You, you have a problem, you come in, and we're we are treating with you. But I'm going to make an observation that many of the people that we are treating, and we do it, and we do it, and we do it to the best of our ability. We are the most compassionate people you can imagine. But I'm going to be honest with you. Many of the people that have come in are there illegally, and mm -hmm. they are um, not only uh, cannot speak English, but in often cases, I, I've actually had patients where our interpreters had a hard time dealing with 
um, uh, interpreting for us because they're so illiterate in their their native language that mm. they, they're not even function at, functioning there. Now, why do sure. I bring that up? Um, I bring that up because these these are people that God bless them are going to have a hard time functioning in our society. Right, they're mm-hmm. going to have a hard, mm-hmm. hard. If you cannot speak English, and frankly, you you're having a hard time speaking your native language, um, you're going to have a hard time. Now, why am I sure. seeing them? Why am I seeing them? Because mm-hmm. of their addiction, usually fentanyl. Yeah, usually yeah. fentanyl. A lot of times, alcohol. So these are mm-hmm. people that are horribly drug addicted. Um, and and for now, listen. For us to to point, we give them um, treatment plans, and we try to help them, and we point them in directions and programs to help them. But the problem sure. is because they can't speak the language. For example, in my unit, we, we do education meetings, we do 12-step meetings, we do all kinds of things in the unit. These patients, they, they don't go. They, don't, they can't even go to these meetings because they can't communicate in these meetings. Mm. So yeah. then we, we send them out into our community services. Well, they're not able to function in those community services as well. Now, um, these stays in the hospital, who's paying for that? You're paying for that, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. And when we have yes. people just pouring over the borders and pouring over the borders, you know, again, we do the best we can to take care of these folks. But you know, our resources are not unlimited, right? That's right. They're not That's unlimited. Right. That's a problem, Grace. That's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. And so, what? It's, any thoughts? Oh, go ahead and give me your thoughts on that. Well, it's like you know, we want to separate this issue from our own personal autonomy. And so, for instance, it works in theory. Um, I would even go so far as to say on some level, it's it's like this virtue signaling, you know, we want everyone open tables, open borders, open, open, open. Let's just, um, you know, bring up more chairs to the table instead of, you know, whatever. I mean, you've got means, you know, galore and all sorts of fun, fancy things that people say. However, (laughs) those same people that are saying those things, if I were to come to your house in the middle of the night, would I find your door locked or unlocked? If I were to walk into your house and take your food that you had prepared for your children, eat it myself and tell you your children can't have any because you need to have, you know, more hospitality. And then your children at some point are starving because every time you bring in food for your children, I'm taking it. I'm in your house. I'm sleeping in your bed. I mean, didn't we have this story with Goldilocks and the three bears? Like there it's simple common sense. And in order for us to retain sovereignty as a state and as a nation, we need to have appropriate boundary lines drawn where people can and cannot be. Now, does that mean I don't have people over to my house for dinner? No. Does that mean I lack hospitality? No. It means that those things are appropriated within the confines of good boundaries. And we have those things for a reason. And sovereignty is important. It is important. Well, you're not a nation if you don't have borders. Absolutely. You're, you're not a nation if you don't have borders. And I think that the analogy that you have is is very, very good. Um, and I <clears throat> and I got to tell you where I work, I'm probably one of the only conservatives that, that works in the place. And uh, I, I look around at my, you know, my opponent, I look around at um, the people that support my opponent, and I say to myself, you know, what's kind of interesting is that, you know, these people are asking for these open borders, and they're, they're asking for these people to come here, and, but I don't see them 
on the front line of helping the people like right. like and I'm not I'm not saying that to be pat myself on the back. I'm saying it's it's what I choose to do. It's what I do. I try to uh-huh. help people every day. That's why I went into this. And I gladly help people. But I look around and the very same people that are saying that we need to open these borders are then not not on the front lines of dealing with the problems of having uh-huh. the open borders. And I think that you uh-huh. um, you have you make a very, very good point. And that is, is that how many of these people are saying, you know what, I'm so for helping people. I am so all about that, that every night, I my door is unlocked. And at six sure. o'clock every night, we have dinner. And at eight o'clock in the morning, we have breakfast. And my door's open. Please come to my house and have breakfast at my table. No, they're not doing that. And, right. and they're also, I look around the unit that I work in, and I don't see any of these people on the front lines of dealing with the fentanyl epidemic. Or the sure. trafficking epidemic. And I'll tell you something else. I'm going to tell you something else. That nearly every woman, if not every woman that I've dealt with, that has come across the border, has been here illegally, and is incredibly drug riddled, is has also been sexually abused. Repeatedly. Yeah. Repeatedly right. sexually abused. And yes. from a humanitarian standpoint, you know, the, the pe- people came here, but they suffered dearly in doing yes. it. Particularly the women and the children. Yep. And, and it's appalling to me that this that yep. we are uh, we're encouraging this. We're encouraging this behavior. Right. Well, I'm not encouraging it. They'll say I'm not encouraging it. These things happen. But you're you know what I'm saying? It goes back and forth. But when we're not taking proactive steps to hedge it in, seam it up, you know what I mean? Like if you're sewing a garment. If you're not if you're not taking the proactive steps of putting the needle to thread and 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 sewing that thing up so that it can't happen anymore, then, yeah, we are. We're, we're not, you know what I mean? We're, we're aiding and abetting, so to speak. Um, I tell my kids when, uh, so we have a, a phone issue in our house. We're, we're those weird parents that don't give our kids phones full access. I even have a teenager. He doesn't have a phone. He has a phone he can borrow, but he doesn't have a phone. And, um, and so they, you know, they want greater and greater access and all of these things. But, um, you know, if if one of them wants their phone and the other one has a phone and then they team up and uh, and somebody finds a phone and the other one knows they're not supposed to have it, but they don't tell and they don't do anything about it. Um, I tell them, you know, you're just as guilty as the one that had it without permission because you sort of aided embedded in the process. So if you're not doing anything proactively to stop the wrongdoing, then you're part of it. And we all have to do our part. So along with that, with education and doing our part, when it comes to the open, what the open borders has done for us, while all that was going on, we actually degraded and attacked the very organizations that were tasked with dealing with this namely the police and interfirst responders in, in a larger context. And yeah. um, so now we're, we've all the institutions that uh, have been charged with helping to prevent these problems from happening in the first place. We've degraded them as well. Is that now, I know you're out in more of a rural area than where I am. I think it's more pronounced where I'm at uh, with the police, but are you seeing problems out there when it comes to recruiting and, and enforcement and what's, what's it like out there where you're at and what are your thoughts? Well, I know that we have a very severe issue with um, drugs and alcohol. And um, in fact, I think, I, I don't, 
I want to tell you the numbers, but numbers are not my favorite thing. Words are, and I don't have the exact numbers, but I know that the, the drug situation here is acute. I can tell you that. And um, the income that we're able to allocate in terms of uh, sheriff's deputies and town police is limited. So there is a definite weakness in that we need stronger um, resources to implement, resources being human capital. We need people on the front lines. Um, And so, you know, it's difficult to negotiate that in a tax conservative kind of a way because honestly it does take tax money to hire law enforcement um but it is needed i mean our i i would say our force the sheriff's office and the town police are i I would say definitely under um supplied with people and the reason i say that is because when i watch the calls coming in and the same people that are going out um and they don't have enough resources to be in multiple places at a time so they have to make decisions where they think the worst event is so that they can judiciously employ the resources that they have whereas if we had stronger numbers um we'd have more of a handle on things. Yeah, I think that's pretty much true nationwide, you know, certainly here in Virginia. And that's, I know in my campaign, that's one of the things that I'm talking about. My my opponent was on the the front end of, you know, part of that whole defund the police movement, which is just absolutely ridiculous. And uh, we have to we have to change that because it, this all works together. The, all of these these yes. issues that we're talking about, this has been a general degradation of our society. Yep. It's a general degradation of the attacks on the institutions that um, that have served us. Now, that's not to say that there aren't problems in these institutions. I mean, after all, I'm, right. I'm heavily you know as a former FBI agent, I'm. I'm also very heavily critical of the FBI and how it's right, you know. But we do need Sorry. to have these institutions, and we need to improve them. I've I've given this example all the time. Let's say I'm working at the hospital, right? Here, here's what we did. I always like to take a scenario in one context and then put it into another context and apply the same standards and see if it still makes sense. So let's say mm-hmm. I'm working at the hospital and Doctor Smith over here is committing fraud and maybe even malpractice, and we say, "Oh my goodness, look at Doctor Smith over here. He he did these things." Um, um, let's go ahead and shut down the whole hospital and let's defund them. And mm. you, the community would say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Um, uh, I understand that Dr. Smith's a bad person, but we kind of need the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, how mm-hmm. about, how about we just deal with Dr. Smith and then implement standards and training and checks and things like that. But, but we kind of, kind of need the hospital. Well, that same mm-hmm. standard was not applied to police departments. We have uh, a couple of incidents that happen across the country. And what do we do? We get rid of everybody or attack yeah. everybody. You would yeah. never do that in any other business or organization. You would never do that. That's exactly what never. we did. That's why accountability and transparency are first and foremost in my campaign. The, the number one tagline I have is putting the people back in politics. And why is that important? Because when we have the people involved and informed, then they are better able to communicate with their representation what it is they want to see happen in our communities. And it is a network and we have to work together. There have to be checks and balances. Part of those checks and balances are having dissenting views. And um, because 
you know, I don't see everything. You don't see everything. And if we have people who disagree with us and see things differently, like the guy, the, the, the guy in the hospital who was doing something wrong, then we have to be able to say, okay, here's what I see. Here's what I see. Now let's come up with a solution instead of here's what I see. Here's what I see. Let's demonize each other, kill each other. And then the whole thing goes up in smoke, um, which seems to be what happens, especially in uh, in party politics is we just, you know, if it's left, it's wrong. If it's right, it's wrong. And uh, and 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 then there's no solution to the problem. And so it just the status quo is maintained. So we've got to come to the table and and we can't defund police. We can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. But what can we do? Well, we can establish more accountability. Uh, We can establish boundaries around the way we enforce things so that people are accountable to the people. If we're public servants, then the public needs to know what we're up to. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And and having the best standards. In fact, really what we need to be doing, and I warned about this um, several years ago when we were going through this. I said, listen, if you demonize the police, then nobody's going to want to be the police. And sure. recruiting is going to suffer. And we see that in Washington, D.C. alone, I think there are over 100 police officers short. Most departments aren't that big. But that's how how short they are. Nobody wants to go be a police officer. The you know I'm I'm still well connected to the police community, and those that are left are not is they're not proactively policing like they used to. Why would you? Why would you mm-hmm. put yourself at risk? You re, you do the mm-hmm. minimum is the minimum. Just get through the shift, go home, and retire. So why would you do yeah. that? So but that's not the police force that we want. We want aggressive police departments. We want people sure. proactively policing. We want that. And they the problem is is they they don't feel like the they the public has their back and what we need to have police understand is we want the best we want the brightest that's one of the things i'm going to do is really actively recruit the best and the brightest to go into the first responder fields because we Mm -hmm. want them we want incentives we want the best police we want them to be the most best educated best trained in the nation and we can do that we're equipped to do that but we need to do the exact opposite now having said that if you are somebody that's committed fraud or if, if there's a problem um i will be i watch out i'm coming after you if if you yeah. got you yeah. violate somebody's civil rights and there's no reason for you to look i was in law enforcement most of my adult life you do you, listen uh, there's ways that you do business there's ways that you operate and you have to stay within those bounds but uh but for the most part, most the, the vast majority of police officers are doing attempting to do the right thing all the time. And if that's the case, then we they need to know that they are supported by the public and by their leaders. And they don't feel that way now. How do I know that? Because they tell me that all the time. So as a law enforcement officer, I'm not going to interview you, of course, but I do have a question as uh, <laughs> you uh, can interview me <laughs> as a candidate, as a former law enforcement officer, what is one of the things you would want as an incentive to continue to pursue that that field? I mean, what is something that you see as a gaping hole that we need to fill immediately? Well, I, I OK, I, I really do believe that f- for the most part. You know, you don't go into this job for the money. You, you, you don't. You don't. It helps, 
and and we want our our first responders to live comfortably. We want them uh-huh. to be able to you sh- you need to be able to provide for your families. So yeah. uh, you know, of course, I think we need to have pay and incentives and benefits. And I've I've talked about uh, tax benefits and tax um, uh, credits for f- first responders across the the Commonwealth. That's something that I would be advocating. But first and foremost, it is we need to know that we have your support. That's what will bring yeah. people back is, yeah. hey, look, I need to know that if I'm going out and I'm doing my job and I'm, I'm acting according to my training and I'm in the policies, and if I have to use force, especially deadly force, I need to know that you're not going to cut me away and, and leave me out hanging to dry. And every time these incidents come up, and I'm talking about the incidents that that were um, taken out of context and they were, mm-hmm. uh, for, for example, there's a number of shootings that were national news. Uh, Ferguson, Missouri was one of them, where the public... Yeah had one perception of what happened and then but the reality was was another doj the doj did a big big investigation on that and it was deemed to be a a legitimate and uh, lawful uh, shooting Um, the public never heard that but most people in the public don't know what i just told you but you go and you read the doj's report on that and i think what when i was a police officer i wanted my elected leaders to stand up and say wait a minute you need to understand something this this officer acted uh, uh, within the standards of the law, within their training, within the policies, and we support them 100%. This, is, yeah. this was not a matter of race. This was not a matter of, because it's always put that this was a racist incident. When, mm-hmm. um, if it is, then we will call it out. But, but most of them are not. And what happens is we just don't have leaders that will stand up. They're always looking at the political wins. And, yeah, and saying, okay, yes. and, and you know who suffers is is the officer. The officer, because sure. these people go away. That officer in Ferguson, Missouri, has never gone back to it. He, his career was over, and he will never go back to that profession. And that should yeah. never happen. And that's where leader, you know what we need, Grace, is we need leaders in our community to call out the truth. Call out the truth about what happens, even if it means it costs you politically, but but the right yes. right thing to do is the right thing to do at all times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a, a verse in Proverbs that says, buy the truth and sell it not. And, uh, and that's the thing about truth. We talked before the show about um, being politically savvy in your communication and that kind of thing. And it's a challenge for me personally because I am passionately in love with truth. And uh, even if I don't like it, even if it's not what I want to see, even if it's not what I want to say, if it's the truth, we've got to stick with the truth. And um, it's the only place where you can have mercy. You can't have mercy unless there's truth. And it's not that we want to be merciless and aggressive and all of these things when we see problems. When we see problems, let's address it with truth. Then we can incorporate uh, mercy if it's warranted or, um, you know, uh, some sort of disciplinary whatever. But it has to be centered and focused in truth. Truth, and we cannot play political games. Well, they're not going to give me money if I don't, or they're not going to vote this way if I. If, 
So we change the truth and we alter those things in order to get advantage in places. And it's become a game and somebody's got to end it. Somebody's got to say, you know what? Enough with the status quo of this foolishness. We're just going to tell the truth and see what happens. <laughs> you know yeah, I know. I mean? It's funny that you say that because I've, as we get closer to the election, I've actually invited um, certain politicians that I won't name onto this, this very podcast. And uh-huh. I've been told by a number of politicians, hey, I've been advised to not come on, not just your podcast. What they'll do is they'll say, listen, it's not personal. It's not just your podcast. Uh, I'm not doing interviews because I don't want to make any mistakes between now and, and November. Um, right. I just want to play it safe. And the way I look at it, Grace, is this. Uh, I, I, I'm not stopping my broadcasting. What do you mean mistakes? Sure. Mistakes. Sure. Now, listen, I'm, a, uh, I, I'm almost a 58-year-old man. I've been around. I've, I've, I've lived, you know, I've served my nation in one, capa- one capacity or another five times over. I've been around mm-hmm. the world. I was in the military. I was in combat zones. I worked the streets of D.C. I've worked in hospitals and jails. A mistake? What do you mean a mistake? I, I sure. say what I say because it's based on edu- not just education but experience. I've been out there. Right. On the streets and i'm not saying mistakes i there's nothing that has come out of my mouth on any of these shows or broadcasts or radio interviews i've ever done that is a mistake it's based on those experiences okay and yeah. uh and the, the problem is is i i have those background that my background i think has shaped me to be a leader in the community now you mm-hmm. either want that or you don't if you want my opponent if you want jennifer foy god if you elect her then god bless you I don't think you're going to like it because I don't believe, right. believe that she has the uh, best interest uh, of the people in in uh, the Commonwealth of Virginia. She thinks that the entire Commonwealth is racist, for goodness sake. And you and I both mm-hmm. know just by looking at the do you do you believe that the people do you believe that the Commonwealth of Virginia today in 2023 is inherently racist? Do you believe that? I have spent most of my life in the Commonwealth of Virginia, and I am not racist, and I was raised not to be racist. In fact, the the idea of racism wasn't even pronounced to me um, until I was in high school. It became an issue that I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and I was, uh, and I was always in very multicultural environments, and I never thought anything about it. I just thought people are people, and I—that's growing up in the Commonwealth, right? So um, I do think there is a profound um, emphasis on race right now, and has been for uh, several decades at this point, and and maybe you know. I don't want that to sound offensive because it has been an issue in our nation, is an issue in certain areas in our nation. And I will say, um, you know, I've lived in places where I thought, oh my, this is an awfully uh, sterile environment. And by sterile, I mean, I'm not seeing a lot of diversity. It seems like it's just me walking around. And that's not the kind of community, uh, that's not the kind of churches I've been a part of. It's, It's just not familiar. So I wouldn't say that the Commonwealth is racist. I would say that we have uh, a history of racial issues that definitely have framed the entirety of our nation. But that being said, where's the redemption? Where is the reconciliation? Where is the turnaround? And if if there's no room for that, then um, I think we lean on the side of the racism kind of 
taking a different face. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, and it's, it's where do you where do you move it. forward with this? And what I exactly. what I really don't like is this categorization of people and lumping people yeah. into groups as opposed to people yeah. being individuals. And that's what the liberals do is they, they put all of us into groups. You're a white male, you're a white female, you're a black male, you're a black female, you know, on and on and on. Sure. Um, you're LGBTQ plus. I mean, uh, no, no one is that specifically defined. Right. right. We're, we're individuals. I mean, like you, I this idea of racism, you know, the idea of race was never even something I'd heard of until, do you know what, until after I left the military. Because when I was in the military, you know, anybody that served in the military knows it's a melting pot. I mean, you have everything in the military. Every person, you know, for socioeconomic group, race, sex, uh, sexual preference, religion, you name it, and you're thrown in there, and everybody gets along. I, yeah. I mean, really, it's I, I've never seen uh, people mingle the way that they do in the military. And then it wasn't until I came out of the military. I'm like, what? What, what are you talking yeah. about? Yeah. And but I think a lot of it is perpetuated and I think a lot of it is accentuated. And, um, you know, a lot of times when you look at groups of people and when you when you go into areas and it seems sterile, I think people kind of choose to do that for for a number of reasons. And that'd be another yeah. discussion for another another day. But I um. I don't go to work every day feeling like there's racial tensions in in the office. Sure. I don't go sure. to I don't go out on the streets thinking, "Oh my goodness, we're about to have a race war break out at any moment." Yeah, I yeah. mean, I I I just don't. I just don't I don't see it. I just don't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that by constantly emphasizing it the way that some politicians do is very unhealthy. Yeah. Uh, in many ways. It's one thing to acknowledge that our experience is different. And I think that's important. And I will say, um, I, I had an experience, uh, obviously, many years ago. I've been married almost 17 years. Um, so before my husband, I had an experience, well, several. I dated um, some guys that were not my race. And, um, and I remember being pulled over with my then boyfriend and, um, and I thought, what the heck did we do? We were, I mean, we didn't do anything wrong. And that was my very first experience with, um, somebody being pulled over and the way that the officer handled it was very clear that it was racially motivated. We got, we left, everything was fine he actually asked me if I was in danger. I thought, what about me makes me look like I'm in danger right now. And, um, and, and so there is something in, we don't want to gloss over it, but we also don't want to overemphasize it to the point where we can't change anything because now we're so worked up being mad over it, that we're not actually addressing the core issue of respect that we need to cultivate in our communities. And, uh, and I think if children can learn respect, um, then we don't have to continue to focus on what's wrong. We can start focusing on what we have in common. So instead of learning your skin is this color, my skin is this color as children. What if we learn, you know, we have differences and uh, this is what we have in common. Do you like this? I like this too. Do we, and it starts at that basic level and kids are going, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and you kind of get this awareness that you're just both people. And yeah, when that, that happens at a well young said. age. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and then, and then also not to extrapolate from like your incident that that's indicative of every single police officer that is that way, oh, that right. it was that experience. No. And the problem is, is we sure. say, oh, because I had that incident, all police are this way, which is not 
That's not like true saying women are bad drivers. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a bad driver. You know what I'm saying? But it's anytime we stereotype and and try to incarcerate people into one category, we're going to lose every time. That's right. That's right. And that's what what we stand on is people are people. Now, uh, but it goes back to we don't ignore those problems. And and sure. if if that's if I'm a supervisor or if I'm the chief or if I'm a state senator and I I find that there's an incident like what you just described, those need to be addressed and that needs to be corrected. But it's a leadership issue. It's a leadership issue. And that's what we need. We need leaders. And so with that, Grace, thank you for so much for coming on the show. But if if anybody out there wants to get hold of you or your campaign, how do they do that? Well, my website is graceforddelegate.com. And uh, I'm on Facebook at Grace Morrison for Delegate and on Instagram as well as Grace, the number four delegate. And uh, yeah, I would love to just uh, be able to engage with folks. And yeah, thank you. Yeah, reach out to her and I'm sure you're doing events. And as we get closer to the election, you're going to have events. And those will be on all your socials, correct? I have lots of events coming up. We have a really big, important event coming up on September 29th at 6 p.m. That'll be at the Shenandoah County Golf Club. Um, There is RSV event. There is a fee if you're not law enforcement or clergy. And uh, we're going to have our former ICE director, Tom Homan, there. He's going to talk about uh, some of the things we talked about today and um, how crucial those things are to the safety and well-being of our communities. So that's going to be something you're not going to want to miss. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. And uh, sure. once again, uh, you know, this is the Mike Van Meter Show. Please check us out on Facebook, Twitter. Oh, it's known as X now, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's called X. I'm still going to call it uh-huh. Twitter. I'm still going to call it Twitter. I'm sorry, I'm old school. But uh, on go. X, Instagram. Uh, and then you can always reach out to us, uh, you know, through the Facebook site. And we'd love to talk with you. But thank you again for coming on the show. And folks, again, get out there and vote. By the way, there is the governor of Virginia, Glenn Youngkin, is pushing out this new uh, system called Secure uh, Secure the Vote. Check that out. And and that's kind of cool because you can, it's, it's almost like uh, FedEx or UPS where you can track your vote, where you, um, you you make a request for a ballot and and you can check the status all the way up until the time that the vote is cast. And I think that that's a great thing to check out. So you guys... We will see you all next time. Grace, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Mike. This is Mike Van Meter, the Mike Van Meter Show, and talk with you all soon. Bye-bye.